Good morning, everyone. It's so good to have each of you here in the house of the Lord. Uh, we're continuing in our series of messages from 2 Corinthians, this treasure in jars of clay, and the treasure being Christ and we being the jars of clay. I wanted to tell you a little bit about my childhood. I grew up with an allowance. I don't know if people, parents still do that these days. But, um, I, uh, my parents every week gave me uh, a little bit of money. It was a spe specified amount. Uh, this, the furthest back I remember was 25 pesetas, uh, which is about 25 cents. I think that, that uh, he probably started me earlier than that, but that's, that's the lowest amount I remember it being. Uh, and I remember from the very beginning, my dad taught me that, well, 10% uh, of everything you have is God's, and you need to develop the habit of giving God 10% of what you have. And, and I remember I had my 25 pesetas, and I'd give my duro, my five pesetas, to, to the offering, and I had 20 pesetas to spend on candy, which I'm sure was really good for me. But that was my experience growing up. So there's never been a time in my life when I didn't understand this whole idea that 10% of everything I own is God's, and it's, uh, it's his, not mine. And uh, the idea of offerings uh, as something that's kind of separate from that and different from that. Uh, but I grew up in Spain, which is a country where that's not even on the radar. In Spain, it's very much uh, an almsgiving type country. So the only thing anybody ever thinks of in terms of giving money at a church or something is if you happen to be in the church and you happen to have some spare change on you, you might drop it in the little collection box. Or if you need God to do something for you, then you'll go and pay to get a little candle and put it there. And it's kind of a this for that uh, approach to it. But the whole concept of uh, uh, part of what I have belonging to God and then also beyond that participating willingly in opportunities to give freely of what else I have uh, that, that wasn't part of, of the thinking of anybody around me growing up in fact in Spain when people came to faith in Christ often learning to think of their finances in a very different way was, was a challenge for some uh, let's see what Paul has to say about giving I've titled today's message, Giving as Blessing, and we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, we're going to uh, finish looking at what Paul has to say in this letter uh, about the offering, the collection for the saints in Jerusalem. And let me uh, back up just a bit and remind us of what's going on. Paul's writing this letter. He's in Macedonia, north of Greece, and uh, he's sending the letter ahead of him with Titus and two other brothers uh, who are going to travel south to Corinth in Greece and they're going to deliver the letter and they're going to make preparations and then later Paul's going to make his way down to Corinth going to finish up gathering the offering and he's going to travel with a team of people from a lot of different churches he's going to travel to deliver the offering to the believers in Jerusalem now why is Paul gathering this offering for the believers in Jerusalem in the first place and uh, if this is year 57 A.D. as he writes this, um, we are less than 10 years away because in A.D. 66, 
was the year when open revolt against Rome broke out in the territories of Palestine, uh, in Judea and Galilee, where the Jews finally had had enough of the Gentile nations imposing their paganism on them, and they were sick and tired of it, and they wanted to do their religion, and they wanted to honor God the way they felt they needed to do it, and they had had it up to here with the Romans. And uh, they finally break out into all-out war against Rome. Of course, that doesn't go well. In the year 70 A.D., uh, only four years later, Rome enters Jerusalem, and after a long siege where by the end of it 10,000 Jews are surrounding the city of Jerusalem crucified, by the end of it the city falls and they destroy the temple. They raise it to the ground. If you go to the Temple Mount today, that's how they left it, minus the mosque that's been built. I mean, they just tore the thing down, and they expelled all Jews from Rome. Paul writes this, 13 years before that catastrophic event. Nine years before all-out revolt against Rome breaks out. Try to think, ponder in your heart, what's it like for believers in Jerusalem whom Jesus has said, when all these things start to happen, you stay close to me. You don't get caught up in these worldly things. And uh, Jesus has been teaching the, the church that the, the purpose of the calling of Israel was not just for them to set themselves apart from everybody so that the Gentiles uh, would be excluded from God, but rather that they would be the instrument through which the Messiah, Christ, would use them to bless every family, every nation on the face of the earth. And the Jews in Jerusalem are still struggling to understand that because they're in the middle of a rising nationalist sentiment where uh, people are very frustrated with Rome, frustrated with pagans and all of their ways of doing things, and they're uh, really uh, pushing Jewish identity to the forefront. And what, what effect has this had on the church in Jerusalem? Well, it's, it's led them to have kind of a bad attitude towards Gentile Christians. Christians who are not Jews. In fact, Paul, whom God has, he's a Jew, but God has used him in all the nations of Asia Minor, Macedonia, Greece. He's been going through all these regions, and God's been using Paul to establish churches. But there have been people in Jerusalem who've taken it upon themselves to come behind Paul to the cities where he's planted churches and try to convince all of the Gentile believers that if they want to follow Christ, they have to obey the law of Moses. They have to be circumcised. They have to follow all of the dietary restrictions and the law of Moses and uh, even though Jesus had made it clear that these things were not required and there's this sentiment of kind of uh, anti-Gentile that has uh, also infected the believers in Jerusalem Paul is aware of this and uh, I think probably his earliest response to this is the letter to the Galatians and uh, you can see he's spitting mad about it when he writes Galatians. Uh, I wish these guys would mutilate themselves, he says. He's, he's so frustrated. Uh, I think through the years, though, Paul has come to realize that God isn't, doesn't want his church to be divided this way, but he wants to heal them. So this dream arises in Paul's heart. 
He says, you know what, I know that because the way things are going in Jerusalem right now, uh, the believers there are, are really having a hard time of it. They are experiencing poverty and real need. They don't have all that they need for their daily needs, and they're going through a, a really hard moment. He says this, and, and, and he's been serving for two and a half years in Ephesus, which is one of the wealthiest cities in, in that whole part of the world. In fact, in his previous missionary journey, he served in Corinth, and now he's in Ephesus. And in both of those cities, he has seen the tremendous amount of wealth that the people who've been coming to Christ in these cities have, and he has this aha moment. He says, wow, God has allowed the, the believers in Jerusalem to, to come to this moment of dire need. And at the same time, he's bringing to Christ Gentiles in all these other places who God has given a lot of money to. What if God is trying to fix what's broken here? And he's giving all of this over here so that we can use this to heal the, these two divided people. So this dream arises in Paul's heart. And he devotes two chapters in 2 Corinthians, a letter with 13 chapters. He devotes two full chapters to talking about this collection for the saints in Jerusalem because he understands just how important it is. And he's already talked about it in 1 Corinthians, chapter 16, first four verses. He's talked to the Corinthians already about this before. That's the background to this. And Paul envisions this as something God's going to use to unite believers across the world. So, verse 1. Now concerning the service for the saints... It is superfluous for me to write to you because I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the Macedonians. Achaia has been ready since last year and your zeal has stirred up many. It kind of sounds when we start that sentence like we're done talking with, about this, but he's got 15 more verses about it. But uh, he says, concerning this service we are rendering to the saints, to those set apart to God in Jerusalem, it's superfluous for me to write to you. I have nothing more to say to you. Why? Because I know you're ready. You have told me you're ready to participate in this offering. I know you're ready. In fact, I've been bragging about your readiness to the people in Macedonia. I've been telling them, man, the people in Achaia, that's what the Romans had called that region we would call Greece today. Uh, Achaia's been ready since last year. They've been, they've been already, they're way ahead of you guys. And he says, you know what? Your zeal, your passion for participating in this has stirred up many other people so that they have also stepped forward and participated in this. In fact, in chapter 8, he's been telling them about how the most Macedonians have been giving. How even though they were in a, in a position of abysmal poverty, they begged Paul, don't exclude us from being able to participate in the fellowship of this offering. And they gave from a position of tremendous need themselves. They gave according to their means and beyond their means. And Paul's saying, you know what? God has used your willingness to stir others to step forward and do th amazing things. God has used your uh, passion <coughs> in this matter to stir up others to outdo themselves as well. 
So that even the example of the Macedonians he's been talking about in the previous chapter, he's saying, in part, is something you guys provoked. Let me ask you a question. How has the way God has changed your heart stirred up others for the good? Let's continue verse 3. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting in you will not prove empty in this matter, so that you might be ready just as I have been saying. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we would be humiliated, not to mention you, for having had this confidence. So I considered it necessary to exhort the brothers to go to you in advance and prepare ahead of time your previously promised blessing so that it will be ready as a blessing not as an act of greed. So Paul is uh, explaining to them why he's sending people ahead of him. Paul is not going just yet. He is sending this letter to them. And this letter is being delivered by Titus and two other uh, really outstanding Christian leaders from that area that he's in right now. Macedonia, perhaps even one of them may have been from Asia Minor, from Ephesus. Uh, he doesn't mention them by name, but he talks about them as really highly respected, solid representatives in the church. And they are going ahead with Titus to deliver this letter. And then Paul is going to stay in Macedonia a little bit longer, and then he will travel to Corinth and he will gather the offering, collect it, and then he and the whole team of people that are responsible for delivering it will travel to Jerusalem and deliver the offering. So now he explains to them his thinking in all of this. Why am I sending these guys ahead with this letter before I come down? <coughs> Why Titus and these other two? Why are they going to you? Well, um, Paul was aware of how Satan works and how he's constantly trying to twist everything we do so that instead of it being something good, it ends up being something bad in the life of the church. Have you ever experienced that, where the church is trying to do something and we're, we're working towards something, but somehow something gets in there and twists things around so that it becomes uh, a thing that divides rather than unifies, that d destroys rather than builds up? And Paul can picture what might happen after all that's gone on, the amazing way God's been using the, the passion of the Corinthians to promote uh, this uh, generous giving among the Macedonians, what happens now if he, he comes down there and some Macedonians come with him and they arrive in Corinth and they say, okay, we're ready for this, your participation in the offering that you promised about that Paul's been bragging about. And they say, offering? Was that this month? And, and uh, Paul says... That would be disastrous. We'd be humiliated for talking it up and, and bragging about you. And not to mention you. You guys would look horrible. And this, instead of building the body of Christ, would create all kinds of friction and division and all kinds of things in this part of the world. Not, not, not to mention what I'm trying to do with the, the, Jews, uh, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. So I don't want any of that to happen. I want to make sure we've taken care of making this foolproof. Uh, making sure nobody can get in and s somehow screw the whole thing up. Uh, so I'm sending them ahead 
so that you guys are not caught unprepared and you have plenty of time to get your, get your act together and actually do what you've told me you wanted to do. Uh, he says, in fact, I considered it necessary to exhort the brothers. He's talking about Titus and these other two. I want them to go to you in advance, prepare ahead of time your previously promised blessing. So Paul's not saying, let me talk you into giving to this offering. They've already committed to do this. I, I just want you to have the time to do this the way you promised you were going to do it. And notice what he says here, so that it will be ready as a blessing, not as an act of greed. Most translators try to help us by interpreting the two words he's using there because they seem odd choices. So most will say not blessing, they will say generosity so that it will be as ready as uh, an act of generosity. And instead of greed, they say something like uh, something out of compulsion or obligation. And he mentions that idea of obligation later on, but that's not the word he chooses to use here. He says, basically, I want it to be ready as blessing, not greed. That's the way he words it. What does Paul have in mind? Well, I think he's suggesting that even if he gets there and they, have the, they give a generous offering, it could still not be the right thing. Because if the, what they're giving is not a blessing, if there's some other motivation in what they're giving, then the gift is not going to be what God wanted. You see, there are at least two ways to give. When we give as a blessing, our focus is not inward, it's outward. Right? This person has a need. I have in my hands what they need. And I am going to give it to them because I want this to be a blessing to them. I am giving as an act of blessing. It is an expression, a tangible expression of love to another person. I am giving this as blessing. But there are other ways we can give. Jesus was extremely critical of uh, people who give in front of everybody so that they'll see them. Remember? Woe to you who like to give things where everyone can see you. And Jesus says, you've got your reward. Don't expect anything from God. If all you wanted was to impress people through your giving, if you wanted it to build your own brand, to build up your own appreciation in the eyes of others, then good for you, but that's not what God wanted from you. It is possible to give as an act of greed. Or a very popular thing we hear in uh, supposedly Christian circles today is this idea that if you give God a dollar, he'll give you back ten. Right? You give to God and he'll give you back. And if that is the way you're giving, and preachers will get up there and say, give me your money. And boy, you know, be generous. Give me a lot of it because then God will give you even more back. Give me all your money. Uh, it, it would be better if, if the leaders were actually the ones giving rather than taking. But, but that's, that's the teaching. You give and that's how God gives you more. 
I would suggest that that is giving as an act of greed because your focus is not outward, it's inward. The only reason you're giving is because you're expecting God to give you something back. Paul says, I want this, off, this offering to be what I envision it to be. I want God to so move your hearts that you're giving generously to this offering, not to save face, not to look like something in front of the uh, believers in Macedonia or Ephesus, but because you genuinely want to bless those Christians in Jerusalem who have been a little bit, let's be honest, a little bit holier than thou. I want God to so move your hearts to love that you want to bless these people even though they look at you sideways. And I want, when we get there to get this offering, I don't just want it to be a big offering. I want it to be a blessing from you to the church in Jerusalem. I don't want it to be an act of greed. I don't want you giving this money for some ulterior motive of your own. I want it to be a blessing. Let me ask you, how are you giving to bless others rather than just focusing on yourself? Verse 6 gives us a basic life principle. I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows with blessings will also reap with blessings. Again, many translations uh, turn that word blessings into generously. But Paul, I think, is very deliberate in his choice of words here. And it may sound awkward to us to read it, but I think he intended this word he uses, blessing. So uh, he, he uses a, a, an agricultural metaphor, right? If you're sowing and you are tight-fisted in your sowing, and you just sow a, a seed here, a seed there, a seed there. Uh, how much are you going to reap when harvest time comes around? Well, you're going to reap in proportion to how you sowed. So if you are uh, tight-fisted in your sowing, your harvest will be a tight-fisted harvest to you. What you will get back will be uh, small but notice he doesn't say, so if you give a lot, if you sow a lot, then you're going to get a lot. What he says on the other side of this comparison is, uh, if you're sowing to bless, if what you're doing in giving is seeking the good of the other person, if that's your reason, that's what you're doing with yourself, you're putting yourself into the good of the other person, you are uh, enacting genuine love in this giving, then you're going to reap blessings. What you're going to, the harvest you're going to get from this is blessing. That, that same attitude of desiring your good will begin to be reciprocated. How do the bonds of love happen in the life of the church? Don't they happen when we bless one another? When we give of ourselves to each other? And when somebody gives of themselves to me, that makes me want to give back. Let me tell you an example in my life. 
one of the lowest moments in my life. My son had left the house. He was living on the streets and on drugs. I didn't know from day to day if he was going to be alive the next day. And in the middle of that moment, we had our chair of deacons was Matt Reeder. And he called me up and said, can we meet uh, so-and-so, Village Burger and uh, so-and-so a day? And I said, sure, I'll meet with you. And I was in the dumps. I really was. And here's what I was thinking. Okay, what's the problem now? Most of the time when somebody says, I want to meet with you, Pastor, it's because somebody's upset about something and somebody has to complain about something. And that's what I was expecting. He's the chair of deacons. He's going to tell me there's some big problem that we need to deal with. So I went there and we sat down and he, he said, we ordered a beer uh, and we were sitting there drinking. I said, okay, what, what do you want? He said, well, it just struck me that you probably don't have anybody who ever invites you out just to drink a beer with you. And I thought you might need that. You know, I treasure Matt Reader. He's, he's one of the guys that just warms my heart. And I have a passionate desire to bless him because he blessed me. That's what Paul's describing here. When what you're seeking is the good of the other. That's what you get back. And we're not talking about making a lot of money. We're talking about a different way to live life. Verse 7. Each should give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. A couple of things I'd like to point out about this. In the time the Bible was being written, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the cultures both of the ancient Near East and the uh, areas of Greece uh, and, and, and Macedonia and all that, the idea of heart was not like we think of it today. Heart was not associated with uh, butterflies and romance. Uh, heart was associated with courage and will, as in when we say this person has a lot of heart. That's the sense, and it had to do with volition rather than emotion. When, when Greeks and, and Hebrews wanted to talk about emotion, they didn't talk about the heart, they talked about guts. Uh, that's where strong emotion resided. So when he says you should give as you decided in your heart, he's not talking about some emotional, spontaneous, uh, oh, I feel good, I'm going to give this. No, it's something you have determined in your heart and have willed and made a choice. This is how I'm going to give. He's talking about this offering. This is how I want you to participate in this offering. You determine in your heart how you are going to bless and that's what I want you to give. He says, don't do it reluctantly. Don't do it under compulsion. Don't do it because of some sense of obligation. That denies the whole point of it. God wants you to bless others. If you're not going to bless them, that's not what he's looking for because God loves a cheerful giver. Let me tell you two ways this verse is misused. Some people say that this is talking about tithing. And what it means is, if you don't feel in your heart like tithing, then you shouldn't because God doesn't want you to give reluctantly or under compulsion. Uh, Paul here is not talking about the tithe. 
Paul is talking about a special offering that has nothing to do with the practice of tithing. It's, this is a one-time, specific, voluntary offering opportunity. We have many examples in the Old Testament of voluntary offering opportunities where the people of Israel came and gave so much they had to tell them, stop bringing stuff. That's the whole point of a voluntary offering. It's a different type of worship and adoration and blessing than the tithe. The tithe is, is something different. That's one way this verse is misapplied. The other way is to turn it upside down so that it says the opposite of what it's saying. And some people will say, I would give, but it hurts me too much to give. My heart doesn't want to. When I put that money in the offering plate, it just, it's like I'm giving away a child and it hurts too much and God does not want me to give if I'm not a cheerful giver and I'm not cheerful about it, so I'm not going to give. And you basically turn this verse into saying God loves tight-fisted, selfish people. That's not what it says. God loves givers. God loves people who give. And what Paul is saying is we need to learn to give the way God is telling us to give. Cheerfully, joyfully. But don't use this as an excuse to say, I'm not going to give. We need to cultivate a heart that is all about blessing the other. That is not focused selfishly inward, but that is focused in love, seeking to bless outward. And this kind of giving, not only does it please God, but it grows us into a different type of person, the type of person that is according to God's heart. Verse 8, And God has the power to make all grace abound in you, so that having all that is needed in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he, has, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness remains forever. And the one who gives seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed and will increase the harvest of your righteousness, being enriched in every way for every act of generosity which through us is working thanksgiving to God. <clears throat> Paul describes this flow of grace. When we're giving as blessing, God is refilling us. And Paul says God is powerful and has all power and ability to cause all grace, all unmerited favor to shower upon you so that, and notice everything he's describing here is, is superlative, right? So that we have all that is needed, not just just enough, but all that we need. Not just in a couple of things, but in all things. Not just once or twice, but at all times. So that you may abound in every good work. This is what Paul's saying. God wants to put in our hands everything always that is needed for every good thing that needs to be happening in the world. And the way we open ourselves up to that is to uh, cultivate hearts that see giving as a blessing, not as something to get something for ourselves. And he quotes from Psalm 112. He scattered abroad, he gave to the poor. His righteousness remains forever. Now you might think this verse is talking about God. It's not. 
Psalm 112 is a psalm about the man whom Yahweh loves. And it talks about a lot of things that this man does, and among them is he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, and the statement in the psalm is his righteousness remains forever. I've told you that word, uh, when you hear it, think rightness as opposed to wrongness. Think straight as opposed to crooked. Think uh, whole as opposed to broken. So what this person who Yahweh loves is gaining by his blessing others is that he himself is in the process being made right. He himself is being transformed into the rightness that is God's very nature. And that righteousness remains forever. God is trying to build in us in offering us the opportunity to bless others and putting in our hands the necessary things that others need to bless them. He is trying to bring righteousness into our lives. A righteousness that will remain forever. And God says that, right? Paul says that. Uh, God is the one who gives seed to the sower. He provides everything you have to give. He put in your hands. It's there because God supplied it to you. He's the one who gives bread for food. And he is going to supply and multiply what you have to sow. What you have to invest in the needs of those around you. I think this principle applies to more than just money. And God's going to increase your harvest. Now people a lot of times use these verses and they ignore what it actually says. They say, see, God wants you to sow abundantly, so give me all your money and God will give you a whole bunch of money back. That's not the harvest Paul is talking about. The harvest is righteousness. God will increase the harvest of your righteousness. What Paul is saying, the benefit we get from surrendering to this way of living is not that we will be stinking rich. It's that God is going to be changing us and making right what is wrong in our hearts. That selfish, greedy human heart that we have will begin to give way to the kind of heart that is fit for eternity. And that is the harvest we're talking about. Being enriched in every way for every act of generosity. And not only is God changing me by surrendering to this giving as a blessing, but also, uh, he says, through us is working thanksgiving to God. So what God is doing in the Corinthians is resulting in Paul and his companions being thankful to God and marveling at the beautiful thing God is doing in their lives. Everybody benefits when we live this way. Let me ask you, how are you allowing God to make things right in you rather than just getting more of what you already have? Let's finish, verses 12 through 15. For the service of this ministry is not only completely filling up what is lacking to the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. 
through the proof of this service, giving glory to God for the obedience you profess to Christ's gospel and for the generosity of your fellowship with them and with everyone as they pray for you, longing for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I love these verses because here Paul is sharing with the Corinthians his vision for this offering. This is what he, what he says is going to happen with this offering. And he's, he describes it as them serving this ministry. I've told you before there, there are two words that we could translate service. Uh, diakonia and liturgia. And uh, we get liturgy from the other word, which is a very religious word. It means service in the sense of ministry, in the sense of service to God. But uh, the word deacon or, or deaconate, it, it's just service. It applies to any kind of service. There's nothing uh, particularly spiritual or godly about it necessarily. And he says, you are serving this act of worship to God in participating in this. And he says, you might think all you're accomplishing with this is that the saints, those set apart to God in Jerusalem, will have everything they're lacking right now, they will have it met. Paul says, that's not, that's not all we're doing here. We're not just trying to make sure that the believers in Jerusalem have everything they're lacking right now. Paul envisions this offering overflowing into many thanks being given to God. Many people, their hearts as they receive this offering and in this moment of dire need when God so richly provides something they did not expect at all that their response will be thank you God for changing the hearts of Gentiles so that they served us in this way. And Paul talks about the proof of this service. The service they are rendering becomes proof. What is it proving? Uh, and and, and uh, it's provoking people giving glory to God. Why? It's proving that their obe the obedience that they profess to Christ's gospel is actually real. They say the Gentiles claim to be obedient to the gospel, the good message of Jesus Christ. This offering will be the proof that that professed obedience is actually a real thing. They're going to give God glory and thanks for the generosity of your fellowship with them. This offering is going to put them into a circle of fellowship. They are joining with them in what they're going through. Not just with them, with everyone. And this is what Paul envisions. They're going to start praying for you. God is going to put in their hearts a longing for you. And they'll stop looking down their noses at you. And they will be stirred to genuine love that God will put in their hearts because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Paul wants this offering to be irrefutable proof that God has saved these Gentiles that he has radically transformed and reoriented their hearts. And that the believers in Jerusalem will have no recourse but to fall on their face before God and say, thank you God for what you've done among these Gentiles. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Paul foresees this 
as a harvest of love. How are you living in a way that causes love to grow in others toward God and toward each other? Offerings are opportunities to give of ourselves from the abundant store of what God has provided in our own lives. God wants us to give away his many graces so that he can fill us up with more. And in the process, as we learn to give away what he has put in our hands as an act of blessing motivated by love, we begin to be made right in our own hearts. Hearts that are being transformed in the act of giving. And others benefit from the gift. They benefit in being drawn to attitudes of gratitude toward the God who commanded us to be generous. And we all benefit as we discover new wonderful bonds of love among ourselves. As we embrace a heart that seeks to bless rather than censure or, or, or be angry toward or whatever other thing we might want to do. As we cultivate hearts that are focused outward, not inward, God is building his body. He is building the community of the saints. Can you think of a better way to invest what you've been given? We're going to sing a song right now, and this is our time to respond to God's Word. I don't know what God might have been putting in your heart this morning, but I want to challenge you to respond to Him and say, Yes, God, whatever you're asking, I, I surrender myself to it. I want you to do in my heart your work. If that's you this morning, I want to ask you to come forward as we're singing this song. We'll have people at the front on either side. Come to either side and share what God is putting in your heart with the person here at the front. And let them pray with you. And let them thank God for God, what God is doing in your heart. And be blessed by your willingness to surrender to it. Let's all stand. Please come while we sing.